Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. William James, William James, philosopher, psychologist. It seems that William James was giving a lecture about the nature of the universe. Um, and afterward, this old woman came up and said, Professor James, you, you have it all wrong. And he said, oh, madam, how so? And she said, the world is actually on the back of a gigantic turtle. And he said, oh, okay, but where does that turtle stand? And she said, on the back of another giant turtle. And he said, ah, but madam, where does that turtle stand? And she said, it's no use, Professor James. It's turtles all the way down. Hello, this is Robinson Earhart. Here with the introduction to Robinson's podcast, number 193. And this episode is with Pins the Podcat and Mishka the Vishla and Robert Sapolsky, who is John A. and Cynthia Fry Gunn Professor and Professor of Biology, Neurology, and Neurosurgery here at Stanford University. Robert is also a best-selling author and one of the leading voices in the current and enduring debate over free will where, as he often points out, he is pitted against a whole lot of philosophers who disagree with him. And I should mention right now that next week I talk with one of them. It's also worth noting that I just got a, 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 new, so <clears throat> excuse me, a new sofa, and right here there is a, there's an ottoman. So now I suppose that we will have two interlopers or two, two co-hosts to the show. But in this conversation, Robert and I talk about his latest book, Determined, and the many arguments that it contains against free will, including at the, the quantum, the neurological, and the social levels, and how if we don't have it, and that's free will, we ought to change many of our social institutions, like the carceral system, uh, which operate on the assumption that people are free, morally responsible agents. We get into determinism, chaos theory, complexity, consciousness, testosterone, weight loss, and a whole lot more. There is a link to Determined in the description. There was some significant background noise at some points in our conversation, but I did my best to cut this out. Uh, and then last, reviews, comments, likes, subscribes. These are always extraordinarily helpful. There is a Patreon, the link to which you can also find in the description if you'd like ad-free episodes and show notes. And hopefully after this introduction, the beasts will be a little bit <clears throat> a little bit less intrusive. But now, without any further ado, I hope that you enjoy this conversation as much as I enjoyed having it with Robert. read a lot of books for this show but i don't think there was another that made me think more or harder actually than determined did and quite a few of wow. these books have been on quantum mechanics so i think that's oh, that's God. really really saying something but anyway i don't usually like to ask my guests to 
repeat something straight out of their book, but I thought a really great place to start would be, as you do in Determined, with this uh, short little anecdote about turtles and William James. Oh, okay. This this is a, a an anecdote I first heard in college, and we all decided it was very cool and repeated it practically verbatim at every opportunity. And here I am many years later, and I'm sure it's still almost verbatim, about William James. So William James, William James, philosopher, psychologist, it seems that William James was giving a lecture about the nature of the universe. Um, and afterward, this old woman came up and said, Professor James, you, you have it all wrong. And he said, oh, madam, how so? And she said, the world is actually on the back of a gigantic turtle. And he said, oh, okay, but where does that turtle stand? And she said, on the back of another giant turtle. And he said, ah, but madam, where does that turtle stand? And she said, it's no use, Professor James. It's turtles all the way down. I yeah, loved that's that. great. I totally loved that. And sort of the starting point in my book, whose main song and dance is, there is no free will whatsoever. We are nothing more or less than everything that came came before that we had no control over, um, which is, that sounds ridiculous because what I'm saying is, why did this happen just now? Because of what happened just before. And why did you do that just before? Because of what happened just before, just before, just before. It's turtles all the way down. And if it sounds ridiculous to say, yeah, it's turtles all the way down, it's absurd that this old woman in the story is coming up with that for an answer. If that's ridiculous, it's 10 times more ridiculous to instead say somewhere down there is a turtle that could float in the air. Somewhere down there, there's free will. Somewhere down there is your brain causing you to do something completely independent of everything that came before, free of its history. And that's like my starting point. When you look at how behavior is the outcome of the turtles all the way down, Every attempt to say that somewhere in there is free will, that there's a brain that could function free of its history, you're saying there's a turtle that's floating in the air somewhere down there. Mm -hmm. No, that that's great. And I'll just try to put it into my own words just to make sure that we're on the right page. I say the idea, the idea is that it's not turtles all the way down captures uh, what our, us philosophers would say are our folk belief or the pre-theoretical belief about free will. So we're maybe we're common sense dualists. And while we, we look around and we see billiard balls bounce off one another as clear cause and effect pairs, somehow our minds seem separate from all of this as if they can maybe like intervene in the world without being caused by something either beyond us or beneath us or deep within us. And I actually, this is kind of funny uh, that we're doing this podcast right now because uh, last weekend I went out on a on a date with a woman who explained to me that science has recently proven we have souls. And when <laughs> when I looked at her incredulously, she like touched my arm and said, "What did you, did you think we were just bones and hair?" As if like she were about to break something very very deep within me. Well, she's right. We're not just bones and hair. I guess. I guess 
the invasive question, which you're free not to answer is, so will there be a second date with a soulful person? No, there, there won't be. She was very, she was very nice, but she was also trying to convince me of numerology. And so she asked me about like my birth date and the time I was born. And she was explaining that there's some like magic behind my birthday that I enjoyed listening to her talk about it. And she went into astrology and it was really a good example of that Popperian criticism about falsifiability because she was telling me that there was something about her astrology that meant she was extraordinarily lucky. And it just so happened that she was a Ukrainian refugee here. And when I, when I brought this up that maybe what happened in Ukraine wasn't all that lucky along with some other things, she was just very easily able to brush it off and, and prove that the astrology is unfalsifiable. Well, I think what we've we've seen in the last eight years in the world of our polarized political landscape is the possibility of you present someone with a very extremist view and set of beliefs, you present them with proof that what they believe is not the case and that they will believe it even more. That is what most of the studies have been showing with sort of the ideological sort of battles going on um, because the clearer there is the evidence that what you believe is not true. No, an election was not stolen, for example. Um, the clearer the evidence, the more you reach the conclusion of, whoa, they must be really scared if they're digging deep to come up with stuff like that to try to tell us that we're not really on to something. Yeah, Karl Popper is turning over in his grave. Um, so I guess your version, like, at least I hope it was nice when she touched your arm and told you you're more than just hair and skin or teeth or whatever it is you are. Well, I, I'm actually curious, though, now, do we have a, a good understanding or any understanding at all at this point of why it is that we can't, neurologically speaking, how it is or why it is that we can react to information that clearly disproves a, a theory that we hold? by holding that theory more strongly? Yes. Um, sometime it could take a totally wonderful form. <clears throat> and there's this, uh, you know, the school of thought and certain people who are death penalty opponents, and I am among them, um, but they frame it in a particular way, which is when someone says, oh my God, how can I try to help these people? So monstrous and all of that. And they come up with a version of this sort of logical impossibility that you've just outlined, which is, you know, the harder it is to love somebody, the more you have to try to love someone. The less forgivable their act, the more you have to forgive them. So, like, that's a very moving version of it. Some of the time we're doing that, that type of illogic all the time in a way that rather than being like, you know, humanitarian, this is just great for our sanity. If we really are forced to think about it, we all have to admit that at some point our hearts are going to stop beating. And yet we're in denial about that most of the time. And pretty much we could not have evolved to be a, a species as smart as we are without having huge capacities for rationalization and post hoc confabulation and denial and all this. 
And then you look at the sort of malignant version of it, where like the better the evidence you show somebody that like vaccines don't cause autism. And in fact, they keep you from getting this fatal respiratory disease, <clears throat> the more convinced they are of, of their version of their sort of confabulation. So yeah, it, it, it shows its head in lots of different settings and is like a very definedly human, irrational thing we're capable of doing. Mm-hmm. Well, I'm really looking forward to getting to something that you mentioned at the beginning of your response, which is your opposition to the death penalty opposition, your opposition to the death penalty, and and your thoughts on punishment. Because I thought this portion of the book, the the second portion, was terrific. I actually recommended it to my sister-in-law, who's getting a, a DRPH at Berkeley across the Bay in public health and works in carceral studies, because I found it pretty eye-opening and, and quite interesting. I mean, the discussion of punishment and I mean, we'll, we'll get to that. But I think that since this is such a complex issue, free will, or at least philosophers have uh, made it that way, I, it would be good to start off by defining some key concepts, especially for our listeners. And perhaps the most important concept to define, since it's what we're discussing, is free will itself. So just how do you think of free will most basically? Well, let me tell you how I don't think of it, um, because it's the way most people do intuitively. <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> and I think where a lot of people get into trouble, which is you make a choice. You form an intent and you act on it. You choose vanilla over chocolate or you decide to pull the trigger instead of not pulling the trigger, you have formed an intent and you have acted on it. And most people's intuitive sense of free will then revolves around three issues. Yeah, did you intend to do that? Um, did you realize what the likely consequence was going to be of you doing that? And did you realize no one was forcing you? You had alternatives. You were not being coerced. And for most people and in most courts of law, if the answer is, yeah, you intended, you knew what was going to happen, and you knew you didn't have to do that, that's it. You exercise free will, culpability, responsibility, punish accordingly. And from my perspective, um, that misses 99% of what's going on. That's like deciding you could only read the last two pages of a book and conclude how you felt about the book or not, because what that stance does is leaves out the only possible question in all of this stuff is, well, where'd that intent come from? How did you turn out to be the sort of person who would intend to do that at that point? And none of that, you know, could you have done otherwise? And did you realize what the consequences would be? None of that remotely, none of that touches on that at all. And most people's folk intuitions about volition and free will is built around, did you intend to do what you just did? And did somebody force you to do that? No. Okay, we're done. And instead, the only question to ask is, how did you become that sort of person who would intend to do that? And the answer is, you became that sort of person because of all of the biology that led up to this moment over which you had no control and its interactions with all of the environment 
that led you up to that moment over which you had no control. And given that, my definition of free will would have to be a brain has just produced a behavior, and the brain did that independent of every single thing that occurred prior to that moment. The brain did that independent of its history. The brain was an uncaused cause. And show me that you could have traded out with that person's brain its genome, its childhood, its prenatal environment, what you had for breakfast that morning, whether your right butt is itchy or not, everything in between, and show me that everything could have been changed and that brain would have still produced the exact same behavior and that's free will. And you can't do that because it doesn't work that way. And every attempt of philosophical compatibilists who say, yeah, 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 we're made of things like cells and molecules and such, but there's still room for free will. Every single one of them saying somehow the brain could still have done that and be completely freed of everything that comes before requires a step that's magic. So we can make sense of the idea of free will. It would be making decisions that are not caused by something before that decision is made. But as good physicalists, we have to rule this out because everything is caused by something before it. Unless, God help us, we're now trapped in an elevator who is a free will quantum indeterminist who will try to explain to you why this one domain, if most but I now understand not all physicists agree there's a basic indeterminacy there that somehow or other you could get from subatomic indeterminacy to explaining the freedom with which we design our moral sense of right and wrong and our like <laughs> moral compasses, and it can't work that way. Um, otherwise, yeah, because why did you just do what you did? Because these neurons just said this, and those neurons stopped saying that to this part of your brain, and your muscles moved accordingly. And why did that happen? Because of what happened in the environment a few minutes ago that triggered you to do that. And what happened else? Because the hormone levels this morning that made you, your brain, more or less sensitive to those environmental cues, and whether you've been traumatized or found God or love or whatever in the last... 10 years and what your adolescence was about and what sort of frontal cortex you finished building then and your childhood and your field life and your genes and the culture your ancestors invented because that shaped how your mother was mothering you within minutes of birth and what ecosystems had to do with what cultures they invented and evolution thrown in. And when you look at why did you do what you just did, the answer is because of what came a second before and a minute before and an hour and a lifetime and a million years before. And the key thing with that is when you look closely, this is not saying, oh, all these different disciplinary perspectives have something to say with how we became who we are. They're all one set of influences and one set of determinisms. If you're talking about genes and behavior, by definition, you're also talking about evolution and the evolution of genes. 
if you're talking about genes and behavior, you're by definition talking about childhood experience and the epigenetic changes you made in gene regulation for the rest of your life. If you're talking about genes, you're talking about the proteins you just made in this part of your brain 20 minutes ago under the direction of your genes. It all turns into one like continuum of determinism that made you who you are. And there's not a crack anywhere in that edifice where you could shoehorn in a free will that requires stuff to occur completely independent of what came before. Yeah, that was that was a really great summary of the the various flavors of determinism you describe in the book. And I've actually spent a lot of recent episodes talking about determinism and quantum mechanics. So I know that you're a, a friend of Sean Carroll. We did an episode on uh, the many worlds or Everettian theory of quantum mechanics, which is one of those that's deterministic. But as you also just mentioned, uh, the indeterminacy of quantum mechanics doesn't really help the, the free will advocate at all. But before we get to that, um, as I see it, you have two projects in Determined, and you should tell me if you think I'm wrong, but the first is to defend the position that we don't have free will, which is which involves, I mean, citing evidence from physics, uh, biology, and beyond. And then the second is to explain how we should deal with this conclusion, especially as it relates to moral responsibility and punishment. But I'd like to get into more depth with that first part right now that you just sketched. And you begin by talking about biological and environmental determinism, which I think are, well, I think the environmental determinism might just be my term, but how do you define the, the physical determinism aspect that comes next? Well, something much more uh, global or less spacey than saying, oh my God, this is incredible. When I just decided to pick up this pen, my brain made all the quarks in my arm do that. Is that a, I just, you know, chose to have those. And because it was nothing but quarks that made me choose that, it's nothing but quarks all the way down. And okay, God help us from that level of trying to interpret it. Um, but more on the level of, we are materialistic beings, materialists in the philosophical sense and in the biological sense. Every time you manipulate the materialistic basis by which your brain works in an intentional way, and as a result, alter your behavior. And we do that every time somebody drinks coffee in order to wake up. We have just shown we are biological machines. And we've just shown that every time we see the consequences that 75% of the people on death row in this country, according to most studies, have a history of concussive head trauma to a part of the brain that helps you regulate your behaviors when you're in a highly aroused, stressed state. And we are recognizing the same exact stuff going on every time we are trying to understand why somebody is not doing all that well on some exam or something. And it turns out they had cerebral malaria when they were a kid, repeated bouts of it. And, you know, and every single one of those, you know, you're seeing, oh, 
we're made out of biological stuff. And that's what is determining what comes out the other end. Well, there are two places that people have thought, have tried to find room for freedom in classical physical determinism. And those are chaos theory and complexity. And I hadn't read about this in relationship to free will before determined. But where does chaos come in? I actually, I actually brought up your book with a physicist at Stanford who said that chaos theory disproves physical determinism. And I had to break it to him that it does not. Uh-oh. Well, just don't tell him I said that. Um, yeah. Okay. I also chaos. won't name him. Okay. My my poor students who wind up in one class at mine, I like put them through like a week and a half of chaos theory and emerging complexity and what that has to do with neurons, which they're not necessarily convinced that it does. Okay. Chaos theory, this wonderful world of our science, sound bites of the butterfly effect and strange attractors and such. Um, for our purposes, what's most interesting about it is it's a world in which it can be formally demonstrated that there are things that are unpredictable. That you start with a simple system and you start with a very simple bunch of constituents and you start with a very simple rule by which this first generation of those constituents gives rise to a second generation, a third, and so on. And it's incredibly simple and you cannot predict what it is going to produce once it has gone a gazillion generations of this, that it is simply not possible to predict because of the chaoticism of the system, because of the sensitive dependence on initial conditions, the, the sense by which a butterfly flaps its wings and you get a tornado on the other side of the planet. And that is beyond cool and totally amazing and sort of does in all sorts of aspects of scientific reductionism. It shows you the way to understand something really complex is not necessarily to break it down into its little itty-bitty parts and understand how those parts work. And if you're not sure, break those down into their littler parts. And then once you understand how all the little pieces work, just add them up together and you'll understand a complex system. Bah, it doesn't do that. Um, so it's totally cool chaoticism and it occurs at all sorts of interesting things and explaining why things like societies and brains and cells and molecules do what they do. Um, but then there's a whole sort of bunch of people who run with it at that point and decide that chaoticism is where you could find free will. And they all make the exact same mistake. And I sure as hell am not the first person to have pointed this out, um, which is the fundamental mistake they make is they think that just because something is unpredictable, that means it wasn't determined. They confuse predictability with determinism. And what chaoticism is all about is fundamental unpredictability in all sorts of interesting corners of the universe, um, but it is always deterministic. You can't find free will in chaoticism. Um, so that's where they get done in. Emergent complexity, it sends me into raptures, how cool it is. That's how you can have like one ant who has no idea what it's doing, can only do three stupidly simple things, 
and you put it on a table and it does these three stupidly simple things and you put 10 ants there and they're still doing that and you put a hundred or a thousand and maybe they're doing slight something slightly structured and you put 10,000 of them and they construct an entire society and make tunnels that could regulate temperature and like cast systems and all of that and you take one neuron that can only do a very finite number of things and then put 80 billion of them together and out comes theology and aesthetics and all that emerging complexity. You put together a whole bunch of very simple constituent parts and when there's enough of them, outcome properties that you could never have predicted, knowing what it is that water consists of two hydrogens and one oxygen gives you absolutely no predictive power over what it's going to feel like to be wet, what wetness is going to be like when you put enough of these water molecules together. You cannot predict what the properties will be. There will be properties that are only explainable on that upper emergent level. H2O tells you nothing about what wetness feels like. And out of that, come stuff that was completely unpredictable and complex and adaptive and totally cool and it's amazing. And that's how our brain wires itself up in the exact same way that ants form foraging pathways that minimize the energy they have to put into it. And it's the same way that slime molds solve mazes and the same. There's like all these emergent rules by which more is different. And with enough quantity, you invent quality. And that's totally cool. But then every person who then, then runs with emergent complexity <clears throat> as the basis for free will, what they always wind up doing is they invoke this concept of downward causality. So you have just had some emergent property of wetness. Wetness has emerged and wetness can thus influence the basic properties of those single little building blocks. Wetness in the form of lots of molecules could carry along, along a molecule of water over the edge of a cliff, and you have waterfallness happening. Yes, there's downward causality in that sense, but what you look at every single like theory out there as to how you can get free will out of emergent complexity. It requires downward causality to be able to make those idiotically simple, stupid little building blocks get smarter and get different. And suddenly you have to, you know, assume that your ants now can speak French or assume that your neurons are now made out of like linoleum or assume that water is now made of two oxygens and one hydrogen, every single model by which you can get free will out of emergent complexity, it requires you to sort of have a magical moment where the emergent level can make the building blocks get a lot smarter than they actually are. And that's why you can't get free will out of that. To, to, well, actually, I was going to say to start at the top, but before I start at the top, my favorite part of determined actually was that when you point out or there's there's an image of this romance novel called <laughs> chaos theory and i definitely want to put that on the screen right now when I, when i do the edits but i just thought it was so funny i mean it's this 
like chiseled chiseled guy with um, his shirt unbuttoned and as you point out he still has glasses so that we know he's a nerd yes but- this is from the 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 harlequin romance series called nerds in paradise there's one for chemistry calling like chemical attraction or something like this <clears throat> so this was chaos theory about how you know Jane Doe was so set on her path to get her PhD in nuclear physics, but that everything became chaotic after she met Will Darling, the engineer, with those incredible abs. But because he still had glasses, yet he was still a nerd. This was this is this whole book series. They're the best, and I am so grateful. Oh, you read them? Well, I I skimmed them, and I got permission from the author to use the cover there. So like that, that took. That was that was delightful that that worked out. Yeah, it was research for determined. Uh, <laughs> yes, but, it was. But uh, so starting at the top, though, so the overarching idea with regard to chaos theory is that chaotic systems are not predictable. But this is purely an epistemic issue. So the the Laplacian demon that knows the initial conditions and dynamical equations can can predict the outcomes because they are determined. So like when we're forecasting weather, we don't know the initial conditions perfectly and we can't. And the sensitivity to initial conditions is what makes them unpredictable, but that does not in any way mean that the weather system isn't determined modulo the possibilities about quantum mechanics. Exactly. Or like sort of the, the, like, fruit fly starting point for sort of chaoticism, the three body problem and why it is formally impossible to predict to be Laplacian and say where every single molecule of these three planets orbiting around each other is going to be in the future. It's simply not possible. That doesn't mean there isn't gravity anymore and that these things are not made of molecules anymore or you know, elements or whatever the hell planets are made of. Yeah, exactly that. It's confusing. Something is formally unpredictable. It's an epistemic problem with that means it's made out of fairy dust. It's magic how it works rather than there being deterministic rules. Well, I I, I know I I guess I should apologize. Maybe I shouldn't apologize, but I'm being very glowing about the book, and I, I'm going to continue <laughs> oh, to do apologize. so. But it's, Please. As we move on to to, to QM, uh, I really appreciated your intellectual honesty in the beginning of this chapter because you you acknowledged one that you'd been dreading writing it, uh, and a lot of it makes no sense to you, and we're all in that same camp. But I there is one flaw in this chapter, and you did a you did a great job in your survey of pseudo quantum bullshit, except <laughs> you failed to mention an important uh, but often neglected figure in the genre who I recently uh, learned about, which is Quantum Bigfoot. There is, there is no. indeed a Quantum Bigfoot that you should know about as a uh, primatologist. Oh, my God. That's, is it a individual? Is it a theory that explains Bigfoot? I, 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 I think it's a theory that explains Bigfoot. I'm not... I'm, I'm not there are probably multi, multiple Quantum Bigfoot theories to be to be sure, but uh, I'm not an expert in any oh, of them. Oh, I'm so sorry. I missed that. I, I, I cite 
quantum spirituality, quantum consciousness, quantum wealth, quantum, oh, what else? All sorts of quantums, quantum architecture, quantum aesthetics, all of those that where people out there are making money off of other people claiming that they can make you a better architect by teaching you a quantum architecture or some such thing. But quantum Bigfoot, damn. Okay, yeah, I gotta go one. check that one. Yeah. As as for quantum consciousness though, I think is are you referring to Roger Penrose? Because even if that's crazy, it still has to be taken seriously if he's advocating for it. it. Yeah. He he hooked up with a anesthesiologist in LA named Stuart Hameroff. And they came up with a theory about how quantum indeterminacy and the microtubules and axons of neurons are the basis of free will. And somehow before they're over with, before they're done with this, you can travel back in time, taking making use of quantum entanglement that could occur simultaneously across the universe so that you could go and correct errors you made in your past. So if you buy into all of this, you could correct the sort of missteps of your your you know, imprudent youth and well, and like it's, it's lunacy. And I had written a whole section sort of all the ways in which it's lunacy and the people who actually know about this stuff um, say it's lunacy and then totally screwing up all of that and forcing me to like tone it down a little bit. Roger Penrose gets the Nobel prize in physics, but it's for cosmology, not for explaining how like the brain works or consciousness works. So I had to tone down the the despairing tone a little bit that somebody like this was saying that. But nonetheless, it is heavily built on things about biological systems that don't actually work that way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have the sense, well, I know that you have many bones to pick with philosophers, but I have the sense that many philosophers, uh, including Daniel Dennett, are not fans of the the quantum uh, nanotubule idea of of consciousness. Yeah, yeah, they're not. It's amazing. Everyone could could have brief alliances with everybody else who they only briefly agree with before going back to deeply disagreeing with them. Um, if I had to, and I'm using the word here tongue in cheek, but if there is any philosophical villain in the book, um, it's Daniel Dennett whose type of compatibilism I disagree with very, very deeply and whose compatibilism I do not think comes from a point of empathy for his fellow human. Um, I, I don't like what he has to say about why it is that we are free. Mm -hmm. I'm just wondering, have you two ever talked about this? No, no. I sat next to him at lunch at a meeting years ago, and he was delightful to talk to, and he had a beard that I envied. Um, but this was before I trashed him pretty disinhibitedly in the book uh, sufficiently so that my publisher's legal department had to look over it. But I just agreed to doing a debate with him via the BBC or something in a couple of months. And I'm already like totally terrified and intimidated as hell because I really am not just saying that his ideas are wrong. I'm saying 
that it's kind of interesting that he turned out to be the sort of person who would have these <laughs> ideas. But in any case, I'm already anxious about it. And uh, so that should be interesting and fun. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, that should be very interesting and, and very fun as an audience member. Uh, but uh, speaking of my audience, I already mentioned this. They should be pretty familiar with the basics of quantum mechanics. So for our purposes, since what's interesting for free will about quantum mechanics is the possibilities of indeterminism. We can neglect those deterministic interpretations like many worlds or Bowman mechanics that we already mentioned, and we can uh, skip some of the basics about the craziness of quantum mechanics. And I'll just start with uh, one possibility that is raised by advocates of quantum indeterminacy allowing for free will. And do quantum effects bubble up sufficiently into our biology to meaningfully impact our behavior? Not a chance. Um, and people like uh, mathematician Max Tagmark at MIT did some like off of the envelope calculations once that like quantum effects would have to bubble up 23 orders of magnitude to have the remotest impact on one molecule. So anything in which all that's going to happen is all of that quantum indeterminacy has to happen to spin in all of the particles in the right direction in every single ion channel molecule, every single atom of this, and every single 80 billion neurons in order to produce something coming out the other end. And besides the fact that it is statistically beyond the possibility that they would all just happen to do the same thing at the same time, um, the term given in the field is the brain is going to like do in the quantum indeterminacy of it is going to quench it um, because the brain is, as they say, a wet, noisy space. Tissue, living biological stuff is very prone towards quenching quantum effects because you get all sorts of noisy, like messy chemical stuff happening there. So you're not going to get stuff bubbling up in order to affect behavior. Issue number one. Number two, even if you did, you got a problem because if quantum indeterminacy bubbled up far enough to influence behavior, it would be generating randomness. It would not be generating the moral compass that defines you or something like that. It would be producing randomness. Um, Sam Harris has said, like, if quantum indeterminacy had something to do with our behavior, we would spend all of our time saying, I have no idea why I just said that. Um, except we wouldn't be saying that, I point out, because we'd all be choking to death on our saliva because our muscles would be all random and disorganized in their movements and our throat and stuff. Yeah, it's a mechanism for randomness. And like even like the most ardent compatibilist out there says, we're not saying quantum mechanics is how you get there because that's a prescription for randomness and that's not what we're trying to explain. Um, the third problem is sort of the last Hail Mary thing that these folks do, which is they say, aha, you can have harnessing of the quantum indeterminacy. Somehow the upper emergent level allows you to reach down and futz around with those little 
indeterministic subatomic particles and tell them to do this or to do that. Another version of downward causality that doesn't actually work that way. It requires not only that you could reach down and as soon as an ant colony is formed, all the ants become smarter. It now requires as soon as quantum indeterminacy bubbles up high enough, you can now reach down and make all that indeterminacy work to your own pleasure and like financial reward. It, it requires a mechanism for it that is simply not there, something that gets referred to as hard downward causality, which almost certainly cannot exist. And yeah, so it's not going to affect your behavior. Even if it is, it would do it randomly. And the only way to get around that is to somehow say that you could think your way to be able to con control your quantal events down there. And yeah, it doesn't do that. You mentioned uh, that even the most ardent compatibilist won't even appeal to that second sort of randomness as being a source of free will. And it just so happens that I'm recalling a, a, a passage in Dan Dennett's book, Freedom Evolves, in which he uh, agrees with you. He, he quotes, I think, ah, this, okay. ancient, well, this ancient thinker, Lucretius, who pointed out that even if a random atom swerving in your head causes some shift in behavior, we don't want to call that your free will. That's just a total accident caused by this swerving atom. Yeah, because we're trying to explain, like, moral character. We're trying to explain, like, those of us where it doesn't matter how many dollar bills are sticking out of the person's wallet that they've dropped, you're still going to run after them to give it back to them. That, yeah, we're trying to explain consistency. We're, we're, we're trying to explain that if everyone decides that you're a swell person um, at your funeral, you're going to come up with your oldest friend who could come up and say, yeah, even when they were in kindergarten, they were already that sort of person. The last thing you want to get with compatibilism is randomness. You're trying to explain like where our moral fiber comes from, and that's all built around consistency. So, yeah. Danny, Dennett, and I sure agree that like quantum indeterminacy is not the way to get there. Yeah, and then by that same token with this sort of downward causation, I think is what you referred to it, is if we sort of rig up some quantum random number generator that's going to, and we assign like restaurants to each number, uh, and we sort of farm out the decision to the quantum random number generator, and it tells us we're getting Italian. We also don't want to say that that was like uh, that randomness is a source of free will in any sense. Yeah. Um, you're not showing free will if you're behaving randomly. You're not showing free will if you're doing the exact opposite of what you think they want you to do. If you turn out to be exactly like your parents, that has been the deterministic event. If you've turned out to have said, God help me, I'll kill myself if I wind up in any way like my parents and do just the opposite, that is just deterministic. Yeah. And all of these cases, randomness is not gonna not gonna save you. I wonder if you're thinking of there was this TED talk 
by this like tech guy who decided to use an algorithm to decide where he would go to a restaurant or what concerts he would go to. And eventually he took it to the point of like what city on earth he would move to for three months. And it was interesting, but yes, that was not producing a stable philosophy in, in him either. Yeah. Ramp is just not the way to do it. So in any case, um, yeah. Randomness is not the way to go. That's as ridiculous as somebody like saying I had to get a string of random numbers and got a random number generator. So I wrote down that first string. So now I've got that list whenever I need a random string of numbers. Like, yeah, it, it, it by definition upends the very point of it. Well, now that we've, I think we've covered pretty much the gamut, though there's of course a lot more detail and determined of uh, physical determinism. I wanted to look at some of the biological turtles that make us up and get us pretty far down. And I guess we should start with Benjamin LeBay and what the research program he's known for illustrates about free will. And the reason I think this is a good place to start is that, as you mentioned, a lot of free will debates begin with this, but you don't think it's the right place to begin. So I'm going to have us begin yeah. there anyway. I'm, I'm, I'm going to start off with a light touch here and say that I think it's a complete waste of time. Um, I don't know if he's Libet or Libet or what, but like read any paper on the subject and somewhere by the second paragraph, it's required that you mention this guy. Uh, this was Benjamin Libet Libet, uh, UCSF scientist who in 1983 produced the most famous experiment of all time, supposedly teaching you that there's no such thing as free will, or teaching you that there still is such a thing as free will. This is the study where like, you take a volunteer, you sit him down, and you say, here's a button, press this button whenever you feel like it. And look at this clock here with this big sweeping second hand, and tell me the instant you form the intent to press that button. And what we're going to do is wire up your muscles here so we can tell exactly when your muscles started to move your finger. And, well, it turns out that, like, on the average, you start moving your finger about 200 milliseconds, two-tenths of a second, um, after you form the intent to do that. But they've also hooked you up to an EEG, an electroencephalogram, ancient technique for picking up brainwave patterns before brain imaging got more sophisticated. And there's a particular waveform that they could look for in a part of the brain where your neurons are telling your muscles what to do. And you could detect this waveform at the time that this motor cortical area is starting to tell your muscles to move. And the amazing thing is you could detect this waveform about three-tenths of a second before people said they first formed the intent to move their finger. Oh my God, your brain knows before you do. Okay, okay, let's not be dualists. Oh my God, your brain has decided before you were consciously aware of, you think of having formed that intent. There is no free will, any of that. This is incredible. And people have been fighting about this one ever since. Like if you're a scientist and somebody thinks you came up with the wrong finding or wrong interpretation, 
you are totally lucky if they're still going out of their way to correct you five years after you after you published because you're usually just consigned to like oblivion at that point. Forty years later now, people are still publishing articles with titles up like Libet had no idea what he was talking about or stuff. Fights over is there a difference between when you form an intent, and when you become aware of the intent, is there a difference between intent and an urge? Is there, does pressing a button tell you anything about moral decision making? You're still fighting about it. And again, for my money, it's a complete waste of time because no one is saying where'd the intent come from in the first place? How'd the person wind up being the sort of person? who would push the button at that point. And I don't mean in this very proximal sense, but how did this wind up being somebody who would be able to go to university? how they develop an interest in psychology? Why they decide that they were altruistic enough and curious enough to sign up for a psych experiment? Why did they have the self-regulation to actually show up on time? Why did they not have this like perverse desire to prove they're smarter than the researcher and mess up their answers on purpose. Why didn't they wind up to be the sort of person who would step into that room and see that everybody was looking at the previous subject and looking at the printout, and because they were all distracted to quick grab somebody's laptop and run out the door? Why did they wind up being the sort of person who would wind up in this spot and push that button at that second because they felt they had an intent to do that? And that's 99.9% of what's going on. And if you don't ask that, you're wasting your time because where all of the lack of free will came in is how did biology and its interactions environment make you the person you were? So I said that is who you would be at that instant. Well, before I respond, I think it's my high school French that has determined that I pronounce his name uh, Libet instead of Libet. Because I just, when I see that E-T, I just, it's a reflex. It's just got to be A. But I'm also sure you get a an inordinate amount of free will jokes thrown your way, and it must drive you nuts at this point. Well, I would say in terms of my roots, I failed French twice in high school and thus will never, ever be willing to pronounce a word with a silent E-T at the end, just as somehow my blows against Francophones. Interesting. And I saw that my my first guess would be that maybe it was because you were not that good at foreign languages, but I saw that you were already teaching yourself Swahili, was it? in in like middle school or high school, or maybe that was Wikipedia just lying to me? No, actually, this was for my my baboon field work. I was like, by the time I was like a ninth grader or so, I not only knew I was going to be a primatologist, but I wanted to do field work in East Africa. So I decided it was time to start learning Swahili. That said, subsequent to that, after then taking two years of Swahili in college, and then spending a proportion of each year for 33 years in East Africa, I'm still pretty crappy at Swahili, so I'm not good at languages at all. Like, like my wife came out sort of eight years into the whole process and spent about a bunch of seasons there with me, and she knew more Swahili after a month than I did after at that point, like nine, 
summer is spent there. So yeah, so I'm not good at languages, but nonetheless, I'm not willing to say Monsieur Libet. Yeah, he's no, I, libet. I, I I understand entirely. I have a deep seated re- resentment against the French for my because of my French teachers, but <laughs> I do do like the language. But well, the the, the formation of a t- intent I see as kind of like your your master argument. So you don't really need to rely on Libet for anything or Libet for anything. But do you think that this at least points to a flaw with our use that word again, I mean, folk intuition of the role of consciousness in free will, uh, with the caveat that it might not play the role that we think it plays in these very short-term, rapidly made decisions? Yeah, and somewhere in there, the the LeBay fistfights come down to whether consciousness is required to be the mediator of intent, even if the intent formed before you were conscious of it. Yeah, some of the stuff we do we're conscious of. An awful lot of what we do, especially in some emotionally aroused circumstances, what we believe our conscious explanation is, is just post hoc rationalization. You know, there's there's all sorts of revisionism, revisionism going on sort of people who try to understand the neurobiology of moral decision-making. And the starting point is one well-entrenched in folk folk intuitions, which is we think our way to a moral decision. And what all sorts of interesting stuff is showing increasingly, no, we most of the time, or even a lot of really important circumstances, we feel our way to our moral decisions and then we come up with a post hoc rationalization. Uh, guy at NYU, Jonathan Haidt, has done wonderful research showing how much that is the case. And you can tell that your emotional part of the brain has made a decision about a moral sort of quandary. And that occurs before you could see the cortical part of your brain has made it has supposedly made its decision, what it's doing is making up an explanation for why the emotional stance actually makes perfect sense. And we see that all the time. We see that every time you get somebody who says, you know, I can't quite tell you why, I I can't put my finger on it, but it's wrong when they do that. That's them showing they have not come up with the sort of cortical rationalization for what is basically an irrational emotional decision. Until suddenly they say, oh, no, 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 I get it. It's because of their money lending practices. It's because of what their ancestors did to my ancestors in the Battle of Cologne or something 300 years. It's because that's why it actually makes sense. What, why I have that opinion? No. And most of the time, in really aroused circumstances, what we believe are our rational conscious explanations for why we've done what we've done has nothing to do with what we've done. When you refer to the portion of the brain that is concerned with emotions, is that the insula or am I getting things mixed up? Okay, insula is sort of a an honorary member of this part of the brain. It's called the limbic system, <clears throat> which is this very mammalian part of the brain that's all about emotions. Reptiles don't have very complex emotional lives. It's not till you get to mammals that you get 
these parts of the brain, the amygdala, the hippocampus, and all these brain regions, and then brain areas that are very, very intertwined with them, the hypothalamus, parts of the frontal cortex, the insula. The insula would have seemed to have nothing to do with the limbic system back when, because what the insula does is detect if you've just like bitten into some totally disgusting, poisonous, rotten food that's spoiled. It has to do with your gustatory detectors in your tongue, or if you're lucky enough, you could smell that it's spoiled, so olfactory disgust, and it triggers all these reflexes. You spit it out, you, you scrunch up your face, you close your eyes so you don't get whatever it is in your eyes, you feel nauseous, maybe even throw up the food. Yeah, it protects you from disgusting, rotten food and being poisoned by it. But then you get to us, and somewhere, I don't know, 20, 30,000 years ago, somebody invented things like morality and moral beliefs and moral judgments and stuff. And like they weren't going to sit around and come up with a new part of the brain to do that. 30,000 years is like a blink of an eye in terms of neurobi neurobiological evolution. They said, okay, moral disgust. We've just invented this concept of moral disgust. You know, it's kind of like disgusting foods and disgusting smells, disgusting acts on somebody's part, disgusting beliefs, disgusting ethics. I don't know. Let's, let's have the insula do moral disgust from now on. And you can show, have somebody contemplate a totally morally disgusting act, and they'll activate the insula. You, you listening about that disgusting act will activate your insula as if you just, you know, bitten into a five-week-old piece of smelly salmon or something, and those neurons cannot tell the difference between a disgusting sensation and a disgusting moral judgment. And what that's about is why when we hear about something really, really morally repellent and stuff, we are repelled, and not just metaphorically, we feel sick to our stomach. It gives us a rotten taste in our mouth. We, we can't stomach it. Eh, I feel like puking. That's so upsetting to hear that. We have all these metaphors for what is quite literal, the part of your brain that tells you that you are smelling something really bad is the part of the brain that's also helping you decide whether this thing that those people are doing is morally okay or not. And you could change all sorts of people's moral judgments in sort of realms of like social politics and stuff by if you put them in a room that smells of rotten garbage or if you put them in a room that smells of freshly baked cookies. And like these have been beautiful studies showing that, yeah, this part of the brain has a lot of trouble between, ooh, I feel sensorially disgusted with that's not right when those people do that. It's not okay. That shouldn't be allowed. Yeah, go talk about free will at that point and how we are making like carefully thought out decisions. This is uh, quickly becoming an expose of my dating life, this, this episode, <laughs> but you mentioned that. That's, uh, that's why I agreed to come on. That's, yeah, that's what they told me we would talk about. <laughs> Uh, that reptiles don't have complex emotional <laughs> lives. And, and one of my first experiences with the dating apps, I, <laughs> the, the girl I was on a date with told me that she had a pet snake 
and she would like always say hello to her snake and uh, the people you meet on on dating app. And I said, why would you have a pet snake instead of like a cat or something? Because snakes don't have feelings. And she got very angry with me uh, on the date. But well, I'm assuming there wasn't a second one. But yeah, insofar as neurobiologically, reptiles do not have much in the way of the material substrate for rich emotional lives. I kind of wonder about the same people who derive rich emotional lives from reptiles. Um, <laughs> you know, back in my field work, it always struck me, you know, it would be very, very upsetting if I had been predated by a lion, but it would be like disgusting if I had been predated by a crocodile. Something about being like predated by a fellow mammal somehow felt like less <laughs> demeaning or or something. Each time I would I would have some sort of worrisome thing happen out in the field there. Interesting. There was a a brief time period many years ago when I was contemplating hunting as a more ethical way of getting meat. And I was watching a hunting show. Uh, I think it's Steve Rinella's Meat Eater. And he was eating a monkey. He was like tr with some culture in, in South America and they were hunting monkeys and eating them. And I found that mammal on mammal consumption to be quite uh, disturbing to see like this monkey being cooked. Yeah. Um, I once in South Sudan had the opportunity to partake in some roasted monkey and passed on it. It just doesn't feel right this is a creature that not only like felt pain and all of that but could pass a theory of mind test that's yeah. like, good enough to get into most pre-k's these days if you are, can show yeah. theory of mind yeah and i think you might mention and determined that chimpanzees will team up to hunt monkeys and they enjoy like i don't think you mentioned this but they like enjoy or may enjoy pulling apart the monkeys while they're alive and eating them. That's like fun for them. And, and it's well, disturbing. A, a, a more, a more sort of cold hearted explanation rather than delving into, to chimpanzee pleasures is there's usually such chaos of everybody trying to get a piece of it that like, you don't wait, you eat them alive, which is, something that baboons do as well, or the gazelles they take down and hyenas do as well. Um, but yeah, chimps hunt. They hunt in strategic ways. They cut corners on their prey. They will ambush one in life. Somebody flush whatever it is out from one end and it goes running right into the arms of the ones waiting on the other side. And yeah, they're smart. Speaking of the baboons and your field work, you do mention a couple of them, a pair of them, uh, a few times in the book, but baboons are not the main focus of Determined, yet I'm still wondering whether it was studying baboons at all that first made you interested in the question of taking the free will issue more seriously as a scientist. Um, I don't think so. Um, I decided there was no free will when I was 14. And even though I was already 
like heading in a primatology direction. I, I wasn't quite intertwining the two. Um, like I sort of have spent half my scientific life as a neurobiologist in a lab and half as a primatologist out in the field. And like if you're a neurotype, you spend a lot of time talking to biochemists and molecular biologists and neurology types eventually. Whereas if you're like a primate field person looking at social behavior, you're talking to sociologists and behavioral economists and ecologists. So I think between those two ends, you kind of get a dilettante sense of a lot of different fields. And what you see then is when you put all those pieces together, there's still no room for free will. And you could sit there and say, yes, 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 um, you know, neuroimaging, structural neuroimaging studies, you're never going to get past the fact that it's purely correlative. So you can't rule out free will that way. Or yes, 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 you've just come back with this amazing hominid skull, but you know, tiny sample sizes in paleontology, you're not going to disprove free will through paleontology. But you get a smell of what enough of these different disciplines are finding and how they merge into adjacent disciplines. And I think it's then that you're in a position to see there's there's no room in there. There's no space to squeeze in free will. Well, re returning to the thread we were on, but moving beyond the insula and disgust, are there any particularly interesting study, studies involving the limbic system that show how it determines behavior in a way that might rob us of or detract from that folk intuition that we are the, the free-floating turtle determining our own behavior? Because these studies are always endlessly fun to hear about. They're amazing. They're every time somebody is in a circumstance where, okay, here's... Here's one. Um, this is like a classic study, and I don't know what aspect of psych this would be, but you give people, you're not allowed to do this sort of study anymore, I would think, but you give somebody a drug that makes their heart beat faster, an, an adrenaline-derived drug, and this will be some guy who in the questionnaire beforehand uh, indicated that he's heterosexual. And then afterward, he's like filling out a questionnaire from like the researcher who is a woman. And then afterward, he is asked to rate her attractiveness. And if your heart is beating faster because they just put this stupid drug in your bloodstream, you perceive that as a signal of more emotional arousal on your part, and you rate the person as more attractive. Another version of this was you make somebody walk like 100 yards over to this versus on a swinging bridge where like you're absolutely terrified when you come off with your sympathetic nervous system going like crazy. And you do this like classic, something that's, uh, that William James sort of pioneered, showing that part of what you do when deciding how strongly you're feeling an emotion is saying, well, if I'm out of breath and my heart is racing, it must be I'm really feeling this strongly. And thus you are coerced by your physiology into making what you assume is a free assessment about something. Yeah. So that's one of the great ones. That's, that's an irresistible one. No, I think that's a, a perfect example of a perfect example that undermines the idea that we are this 
or when I, when I say we, it's hard to pinpoint what I mean, but our, our conscious selves, I suppose, are this free floating turtle that makes a decision that isn't hampered by seemingly superfluous biological dimensions of ourselves, such as our heartbeat. Yeah. Yeah. Our microbiome and our guts, the makeup of bacteria there turn out to have a significant influence on your likelihood of an anxiety disorder or major depression. Whoa, what's that about? Yeah, all of these unforeseen outposts, and in some ways, like what the last, you know, four centuries of biology insight has consisted of, is people saying, whoa, I had no idea that had something to do with biology. I had no idea that, like, who I hate and who I fell in love with and whether I could concentrate and whether I'm good at reading and whether I have morally acceptable behaviors by the rules of my society and what I view of my society's rules and their legitimacy. I had no idea biology has something to do with that. Yeah, that's all we've been learning leading eventually to we are nothing more or less than that biology and the way it interacts with that environment that we've been handed by luck. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm not as hostile to Freud and, and psychoanalysis as most people I know in academia are, but I still find it pretty amazing that uh, psychoanalysts uh, around the turn of the 20th century or 19th century. I think that's the proper turn that I'm thinking of. And then up until the 1950, up until like the middle of the 20th century, people thought that our behavior was all nature. And I mean, all nurture and not nature, that biological determinism wasn't really a thing. Yeah. But then, then Freud would wave his hands and cite all sorts of instincts that instincts that implied and innateness, but nonetheless, the use of that word in that context, that like next to no meaning. Yeah, so they pissed off the behaviorists. So the behaviorists then decided it was going to be, you know, nothing but this type of environmentalism. And then that pissed off the biological psychiatrist who decided it was going to be, yeah, it's nature intertwined with nurture. Yawn. You can't, you can't separate the two. Returning to the baboons and another biological turtle. Oh, maybe maybe you don't want to bring the baboons into this. But how do testosterone and other hormones shape our behavior in ways that, again, sort of undermine this idea that it's our free-floating consciousness turtle that's doing the yeah. behaving? Well... Say with testosterone, I can I can easily get onto a soapbox with this. Everyone thinks testosterone causes aggression. Testosterone does not cause aggression. Testosterone makes individuals who are already socialized into being aggressive more likely to be aggressive. Testosterone lowers the threshold for social cues to provoke aggression in you. Testosterone is not turning on a radio. It's upping the volume once it's already on. And like that could be shown at sort of a nuts and bolts, you know, neural level as to what testosterone does there. So it has these effects. 
And what you then see is even more subtly, testosterone doesn't even lower your threshold for being aggressive. Testosterone lowers the threshold for you doing whatever it is you need to do to hold on to high status when it's being challenged. Okay, well, some of the time, like some other baboon is threatening you when it's all about sharp canines, and the logical response then is aggression. But then we get humans. Then we get humans where, like, you could gain status by being the person who, like, picked up the most litter along the highway in your do-good group that goes and does that. Wow, that gets you status? Or you could get you status by, like, rich people now competing for how big of like research institutes they can endow in their names or things of that. Whoa, we can get status in really weird ways. And that produces a totally bizarre prediction. Like if you could put somebody in a circumstance like some game where you derive brownie points by being generous, testosterone would make you more generous. That's exactly what you see. Totally cool studies. Testosterone just makes you more sensitive to whatever social cues you have learned that provokes whatever social pathways you have learned to maintain dominance and high status. So it's not causing that. Okay, so what you would then say is, aha, aha, I think you have just like weakened your whole argument here because testosterone didn't cause any of those behaviors. Testosterone lowers the threshold for it. testosterone, modulates testosterone, predisposes. And it turns out genes don't cause behaviors. Genes make you more or less vulnerable. They affect a proclivity in a certain direction. Say, wow, it sounds like none of these things are actually deterministic. Where are you getting off saying like the world is deterministic? There's no free will. When you put all the pieces together, it's deterministic. Because you then have to ask, whoa, testosterone made this person, you know, murderously violent, and testosterone made that person give the highest bid at this charity auction. Well, I guess testosterone is not quite deterministic. Yeah, but we got a lot more deterministic going on when we understand how the person who is looking for status by way of stabbing somebody to death how they wound up being that sort of person versus one who, now that they've gotten rich from their IPO, they want to be seen as the richest person at this, you know, celebrity auction, how they wound up being that sort of person. Yeah, that's where you got to put all the pieces in there and put all the pieces in. And yeah, this hormone is modulatory. Yeah, that part of the brain's impact is about vulnerability. Yeah, this or that, you put all the pieces together. And that's when you see there's absolutely no room to squeeze in free will. Does testosterone have this same effect on women? Uh, restricting ourselves, of course, to this status-related sense, because obviously there are other effects like secondary sex characteristics that I'm not referring to, though those also certainly have their own effects on behavior. Yeah. Okay, so the first off jargon, when I say testosterone... I was actually meaning that as part of the subclass of steroid testicular hormones called androgens. So women secrete androgens, um, not a ton of them, maybe a tenth the level that males do. They don't come out of the testes because women don't have testes. They 
they come out in the adrenal glands, adrenal androgens. They're not exactly testosterone, but they're pretty close structurally. And these androgens have a more muted version of the same effects on behavior that androgens do in males. Um, and thus, you see all the same qualifiers. How much of a role does androgen play in causing female aggression? Not much at all, but it plays a modulatory role, lowering the threshold, blah, 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 all of that. Um, but the very first study showed that if you give volunteers androgens, like testosterone, in an, in an economic game where you are rewarded by being generous, people become more generous. The first study subjects, the first paper showing that were women. So androgens are doing the same thing in them as in men. There are two last biological turtles I wanted to talk to talk about uh, before we get to, I guess in talking to you, I am talking to your biological turtles, but two last turtles I wanted to get to before we turn to the second part of the book. And one of these turtles is a little bit further down, and that's that who we are today is also formed by the natal environment. And what are some ways in which our time in the womb determines who we are? My mother was very anxious, I'm sure, while I was pregnant, and I'm wondering if that has had any effects on my anxiety uh, to this day. It didn't cause it, but it made it statistically more likely. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, there's this misattribution that environment begins at birth. No, it doesn't. You just had nine very intimate months of shared environment with your mother, sharing some of the same sensory information. The diaphragm turns out to be when your mother is talking, uh, turns out to be a wonderfully resonant thing to translate that into sound waves inside a womb. Um, smells get in there indirectly. And most of all, you're getting mom's blood and whatever is in the blood. So if mom is very, very stressed, your brain will be exposed to more stress hormones. If mom is exposed to, you know, excessive amounts of alcohol, like any, it will translate into alcohol getting into your fetal brain. Fetal environment has all sorts of influences because that's kind of when you're starting this construction project on the brain. So as but one example of that, if your mother was immensely stressed during pregnancy, like homeless or refugee or who knows what, um, she will have been secreting elevated levels of this one class of stress hormones called glucocorticoids. Um, and as a result, your fetal brain would have been marinating in excessive levels of glucocorticoids. And one of the results of that is there's a permanent change in your brain, what would be called an epigenetic programming change, um, such that a part of your brain called the amygdala is going to be bigger than average when you're an adult. And we know exactly how that works and what genes are turned on and which ones are turned off. And it's clear in all of that. So you now, as an adult, have a bigger amygdala. What's that going to mean? You're going to perceive threats that other people don't. You are going to feel anxiety in circumstances that other people don't. People with a array of anxiety disorders wind up having an expanded amygdala. All of that 
you were now more prone towards that. And what's really amazing is if as a result of this, you now have elevated glucocorticoid levels, your amygdala is hyperreactive, elevated glucocorticoid levels when you're an adult. Um, if you're a woman, when you're pregnant, your fetus is going to be exposed to elevated glucocorticoid levels. And thus, they're going to be born with a somewhat enlarged amygdala. And as an adult, they're going to pass that trait on to their child who are going to have a little bit larger than normal amygdala. And what you see is a multi-generational ripple that could be passed on, and this has nothing to do with genes. Do people with expanded amygdala prefer horror movies? That's a really good question. Um, I'm not sure. I yeah, think that I could go either way. Maybe they'd love them or maybe they'd absolutely hate them, but I imagine they would have uh, a more sensitive response to them than the, the neurotypical amygdala having I person. Bet you're right, but I can't guess in what direction. Um, one thing I do feel certain about is they're much more likely to have gotten into a fist fight with the person filling up their, their popcorn dispenser about how the person didn't put enough in because they would see provocation. What? You're not giving me enough? What? You're looking for trouble here? Says you're enlarged amygdala. Are, are you familiar with the neuroscientist slash psychologist uh, Joseph Ledeau at NYU? Sure, yeah. Yeah, yeah. he's in a band called the Amygdaloids. Yes. You didn't know that. He's, he's great. He's a good musician. I've heard him play. He always plays at neuroscience conferences. It's, oh, really? Yeah. We yeah. Just, I just I spoke with him a, a couple of weeks ago, so it's fresh on my mind. Oh. No, he's great. He's amazing scientist. Well, the the okay, the last turtle I wanted to ask about was again out of personal interest and uh, the role of the prefrontal cortex in determining behavior. And I was particularly curious about how it shaped might shape or contribute to our eating behavior uh because i started a a, a diet yesterday uh, okay well first thing is i hope you've got a prefrontal cortex because that's going to be really central to this prefrontal this cortex yep front of your head front of your brain uh distinctive features uh it's the most recently evolved part of our brain we've got more of it proportionally than any other species out there or at least we've got more complicated wiring it's the last part of our brains to mature so somewhere on the average around mid grad school one gets a fully formed frontal cortex it's around age 25 or so so what's the frontal cortex do self control emotion regulation long term planning gratification postponement all of that and thus, like the reason why, you know, adolescents behave in adolescent ways is because they don't have a mature frontal cortex yet. The rest of their brain is going full blast and they don't have much frontal cortex. Um, so anytime you're in a circumstance where you are tempted to do something and you know that's not the right thing and you're struggling with it, the struggling neurobiologically is your frontal cortex telling the emotional parts of the brain, don't do it, don't do it, you're going to regret it, believe me, I know it sounds like a good idea right now, really don't do it. And 
all sorts of classic studies where like you get somebody who's dieting and you sit them down at the table and there's a bunch of M&Ms sitting there and just saying that makes me want to have some M&Ms. Um, but the person is dieting. But if you've just made their frontal cortex work hard by a whole class of like puzzle type tasks that rely upon frontal function, you kind of tired out your frontal cortex. And then afterward, they eat more M&Ms than if they hadn't had that sort of frontal depleting sort of thing. If you have somebody who hasn't eaten in a while, they have more trouble doing frontal cognitive tasks. It goes in both directions. So yeah, frontal cortex is real critical. And the things about it is not only are you can still constructing it in your early 20s, not only is experience and environment helping to teach you what counts as the right thing to do in any circumstance, but already when you were a fetus, the level of stress your mother exposed to is impacting the rate at which you're beginning to construct your frontal cortex. So you've got 25 years worth of how lucky were you? How lucky were you in your biology? How lucky were you in your sort of environment? Are you going to have a brain which at the, you know, splits in the road of temptation where it's clear what's the right thing to do, even though that's harder? Are you going to wind up being someone with every, every opportunity, you make the wrong choice, you make the impulsive one, you make the short-sighted one, and, you know, our jails are filled with people who had circumstances producing brains in them where in at least one critical juncture they sure made the right they sure made the wrong choice uh because there was a more tempting one to do and that's got a whole lot to do with that sort of prefrontal cortex life and luck has gifted you well yeah emotional control Long-term planning, self-control, I can see why the, the PFC will be very important for me indeed. And just to, to wrap this up before we get to that punishment, uh, I, I mentioned earlier, well, my phrase was that the intent was sort of your master argument, just saying, like, where does intent come from? That's the big question. And I'm wondering if the purpose for you then of explicating all these numerous different arguments for the absence of free will going into complexity and quantum and determinacy and, and chaos theory that all aren't really directly relevant to the biological question of how intent forms. Is the purpose of this to just prevent your opponents from trying to wiggle their way out? Or is it just to give a really comprehensive look at all these different ways that we don't have free will, even if the biological route is sufficient for your purposes? Um, yes to both. Uh, definitely uh, yes to, well, let's have a broad survey of compatibilist thinking these days about where free will might come from. And there's some who say it may be based in this interesting new area of neurobiology, blah, blah, blah. But yeah, it's also like, if you're on a date with someone and they're telling you free will comes from your quantum determinacy, um, here's why you should be skeptical, either very locally or very globally. 
Yeah, it's, oh God, if you get somebody who, who does the free will comes from like emerging complexity, here's what you can do to tell them why that actually doesn't make any sense. So that, that was more like a public service announcement doing, that was taking on those three topics. Great. Well, okay. Without any further ado, then turning toward and, and finishing with your thoughts on moral responsibility and punishment and just preliminarily how does raising skepticism about free will actually affect the behavior of people what do studies show because i know that the common uh, refrain is oh if, if we don't have free will uh, to use your word people will just run amok but is that the case for as more often said whether or not we have free will we better tell people they have free will or else people are going to run amok um, this is the first panic everyone has. And oh my God, you can't go tell me people there's no free will. People will run amok. Um, just like if you conclude I can't be held responsible for my actions, that's going to have some bad consequences. Um, just like the general assumption that if you decide there is no God and thus no omnipotent force that could hold you responsible for your actions, people will just run amok. And what you see at the free will end is this small literature where when you psychologically manipulate people into feeling that, they're le that there's less free will than they thought before, um, 30 minutes later, they're more likely to cheat on a test. They're more likely to be a jerk and make a uh, selfish offer in some sort of economic gain, whatever. Aha, when you decrease people's sense of free will, people will run amok. And when you look closely, that's not what the really meaningful studies are showing. Don't look at some freshman psych 101 person who, like you've now spent 15 minutes to try to manipulate them into feeling less than free will. Have someone come in who says, yeah, actually, I haven't believed in free will since like my early teenage years or something. And you put them up against someone who believes fervently in free will and in the justice of people being held responsible for their actions, and they're both going to be equally highly ethical in their behavior. And as the studies show, you take somebody who has long thought that there is no God, and you put them up against someone who is highly, highly observant and believes that human goodness comes purely in a religious perspective, and they're both going to be highly, highly ethical in their behavior. It's the people who are in between who just, you know, apathetic or couldn't care less or whatever. Why are we talking about something that's boring are the ones where you have the lower average levels of ethical behavior. Why is it that people who have always thought that we are masters of our fate and have to be held responsible for our actions and people who have long thought we are nothing more or less than our biological luck. Both turn out being highly ethical in their behavior on the average because they've both had to sit there and think, wow, where does human goodness come from? Why are we here? Is there meaning? What does it mean that we might be alone in the universe? Is there, and like you go through all of that and you've done the hard work, it almost doesn't matter whether you conclude there is a God or there isn't one where you conclude we're captains of our fate or we're purely biological machines. It's having done the hard work about 
what is the basis of our like goodness and badness from, and you're going to wind up in the ethical end. And that's what the studies show. So no, you don't have to worry that people are going to run amok if they stop believing in free will, if they're taught it in the right way. If they're taught that believing that there's no free will has some very, very strong moral imperatives that come out of that, if you teach that as fervently as you would teach them, you have free will and God is watching you and will judge you on the choices that you make. If I were told that I suddenly didn't have free will, and I think that this is maybe what I'm about to say is going to channel one of the thought experiments put forth by philosophers in your book, uh, say that like a, an evil neuroscientist had put a cha uh, chip in my brain, and I were told that uh, my behavior was actually being controlled by somebody else, I can still imagine that I would be doing everything I could to resist, even though I guess it's paradoxical since I'm told that I can't resist, uh, doing all sorts of amok-related things just because I really don't want to be subject to the consequences of running amok. And I imagine that's what's going through these people's minds, if not consciously, when they're told that they no longer have free will. They're not going to just suddenly go crazy and rob Trader Joe's because they don't want to experience the consequences. Yeah. And what we're also seeing there is, you know, somebody telling you, if need be over and over and over and over, that there's no free will. It isn't going to be like some god-awful 500-page book isn't going to do. Yeah, there's strong intuitions to overcome. And like everything is embedded in all the other influences out there. So yeah. That that's you're not you're not switching throwing a switch or something. And now tying free will back to biology, why do you think of how we've come to think of epilepsy and, and crimes associated with it as indicative of how we should come to think of crimes and justice? more generally? What is the connection here? Well, it's this long trajectory of us learning about stuff that people do or stuff that happens that turn out not to be somebody's responsibility. Like somewhere, I don't know, back when, uh, if you and I were like 500 years ago and we were the same sensible, self-reflective, vague, heady people we are right now or whatever, um, I meant that we almost certainly would have believed that if a lightning storm comes completely out of nowhere and destroys everyone's crops, it was because of witchcraft. A witch caused that to happen. A witch exercised free will and chose for that storm to happen and come and kill your crops or poison your well or some such thing. And then at some point we figured out, no, that's not actually like lightning storms like that are not caused by old women with no teeth. And so it doesn't make sense to burn them at the stake anymore. Wow, that's good. We've just managed to make the world more humane. And we've even understood a little bit about where thunderstorms don't come from. And then, you know, a century later, people are believing throughout Western Europe 
that an epileptic seizure is a sign of demonic possession and go and burn them at the stakes and the usual sort of things. And then it wasn't until early 19th century that people learned, no, actually, this is kind of like a disease. This is like you're impaired because you broke your leg. Yeah, we can understand that in terms of construction items. You're impaired because, you know, once a month, potassium channels in this part of your brain get all hysterical. And suddenly that had nothing to do with Satan. And this was not only a more efficacious way of learning how to treat epilepsy, but it was a more humane one. It's kind of nice that we're not burning people at the stake anymore for presumably sleeping with Satan. And we've just done that over and over. Somewhere in the 1970s, people figured out that Freudianly screwed up hostile, toxic mothers are not the cause of schizophrenia. It's a neurogenetic disorder. And suddenly, generations of women who were told by doctors, you, you were the cause of your child's schizophrenia, even though I know you consciously tonight, you've, you've always hated your child. That was the psychoanalytic, psychodynamic stance on it. So we've been freed of that. And we're, I don't know, 20 years into being freed from some Kids' eyes flip along, flip around closed loop letters, and as a result, they have trouble learning to read. They have dyslexia, and we learned that's not because they're lazy and unmotivated. It's because they've got screwy wiring in this one layer of one part of their cortex, and as a result, they have trouble distinguishing Bs from Ds. And in each cases, like not only hasn't the roof come in. But we've gotten better at figuring out how to deal with some of these limitations. Um, but most of all, the world's become a nicer place, a more humane place. It's very good that we don't tell kids with dyslexia that they're lazy and unmotivated. Like, this is a better planet as a result. And all these other cases as well. But then how does this, though, relate to, I guess, the second part of my question, which was, like, the crimes associated with epilepsy? So I have car crashes in mind and how we ought to treat them in the criminal justice system. Well, you're not crimes. They have no place in the criminal justice system. You get somebody who's driving along, has no history of epilepsy. And suddenly from out of nowhere, they have a grand mal seizure, lose control of the car and hit and kill somebody. There is a responsibility there. This is not a matter for the criminal justice system. Um, and that was not the case 50 years ago or 100 years ago. There's been tremendous progress there. And what you do instead is you constrain the person. You try to keep society safe from them. You say something like, okay, now that we have you on meds, you need to go six months seizure-free before we'll reinstate your driver's license. Does this connect with what you call the or refer to as the quarantine model of criminology? Yeah, exactly. And this is, you know, this is very enlightened form of thinking with this. Um, you know, if you really believe this no free will stuff, none of us are entitled to anything. None of us have earned anything. None of us deserve anything. There is nothing about you 
that makes you and your needs more worthy of consideration than that of any other human out there. Um, and, you know, this is kind of challenging. And, like, you can't praise anyone. You can't blame anyone. You can't reward. You can't punish. Taken to its logical conclusion. And one downside of this is, you know, the perception immediately that, oh, you're just going to have murderers running around on the streets because they're not responsible for their actions? Absolutely not. Um, you constrain them. You make sure they're not hurting people anymore, but you constrain it in a way that's intellectually completely disconnected from, like, a notion of blame or causality. And we know how to do this. Like, if you have a car whose brakes are broken, it's dangerous. Maybe the brakes failed and it killed someone, and this is totally terrible and a nightmare and all of that, but it's not the car's fault. And if you can't fix the brakes, you were able to protect society from that car without telling the car it's got a rotten soul. Put it in a garage, you can't drive it anymore. But you don't go in every day with a sledgehammer and bash the car across the hood as punishment for it having hit that person. No. And we're capable of doing that in the human realm as well. We do this, you know, here's this setting where here's a person who's dangerous to others. They're dangerous and you need to protect people from them. And we have learned how to constrain them in a non-judgmental way that does not invoke free will at all. If your kid is sneezing a lot, don't send them to kindergarten tomorrow. They ask you, if your child has a nose cold, keep them home from pre-K and kindergarten. And so you do that. You quarantine them, but you don't forbid them with playing with their toys that day because they sneezed all over everyone yesterday. It's got nothing to do with that. And, you know, you were able to now not only, like, save the world from kids sneezing all over the kids sitting next to them, but you're not telling kids they've got rotten souls if they sneezed on someone. And this has got to be the model system that we're using in all these cases, a quarantine model. You make sure somebody's not damaging to anyone around them. The second, you don't constrain them an inch more than that. There is no such thing as punishment as a virtue in and of itself. Um, the third thing, you don't preach to them about how you're doing this because they've got a lousy soul. And the fourth is like a classic public health dictum of that point that you now have as much of a responsibility to go figure out where does that harm come from? Why do some people wind up being that way? Why do kids get nose colds and how you can avoid that? So you protect society from them. You don't do anything more than is necessary. You don't preach to the person. And... Like, you don't, like, claim that somehow this is, like, a societal good at the end. Now, you said uh, that we, sh we should be constraining murderers. We're totally in agreement there. And I wonder, though, in, you write about this a bit in the book, but at least in the United States, unless you're a very rich white collar criminal when you're incarcerated it is very much a, a punitive affair and it's not uh, pleasant you are constrained uh, many many feet beyond uh, 
just what is needed for society, not just an inch. So this raises the question of what punishment is and what the Uh, benefits are, objections, and (laughs) how we should be punishing murderers. Um, This this is uh, sort of this great chart come up with this philosopher Saul Smiliansky of saying, of course we have to punish people. Of course we have to have the view of them having free will. I believe there's free will, but even if I didn't, we would have to do this anyway. We have to be able to punish people because what? You're going to say, ooh, bad boy, let's send you to summer camp where like you're locked up on this great island and you get to have fun all the time? No, the word is punishment, not punishment. And which is a stance that I consider to be absurd on like just so many different levels, uh, you know, on a purely, you know, pragmatic level, you know, empirical level. Uh, Increasing, say, the severity of punishment for a crime of passion has no effect on this incident, things of that sort. You look at countries that have these incredibly depraved, permissive penal systems that are all about punishment, like those utopian, nutty Scandinavians, where like prison there is unrecognizable compared to here. And they've got vastly lower crime rates and vastly lower recidivism rates. It's not that like you're going to turn jail into a country club and people are suddenly going to become more violent because they want to get arrested and sent to jail. Um, yeah, his his critique makes no sense to me. So do you think that our, in the United States, ideally the carceral system should come to resemble something more akin to what's going on in Norway or Sweden or or somewhere like that? Um, Well, just to really show the lunatic fringe on men, I would say, no, they're nowhere near extreme enough because they're still working with models that presume responsibility. They have, you know, the truth and reconciliation model was sort of Scandinavian originally. And what you do is the perpetrators have to sit down and tell you exactly the awful things they did and how they're not going to do it again and how, if they do it, they're going to be held responsible. They admit that they're responsible. Or all sorts of restorative justice ones, the person, the the, the criminal is supposed to sit down and talk with the victims and the criminal needs to be able to say, yeah. I understand the harm that I did, and I did it. I I chose to do this. I chose, and I understand your pain. I hope you can appreciate the pain of how I got here, all of that. But the starting point again is, yeah, I'm responsible for my behaviors. I can be held responsible. If you're really taking it to the logical extension, punishment makes no sense, and blame makes no sense because it is never deserved and it is never earned. And nonetheless, we've got to construct a world in which like dangerous people cannot harm other people. Um, something that is clear, which I now wish I had emphasized even more in the book, is the flip side of this is absolutely true. Not only do we have to trash the entire criminal justice system, we have to trash meritocracies as well because they're based on just as erroneous beliefs in we get what we deserve, we get what we have earned. And what you see at that end, the immediate worry, you know, you tell people, 
criminal justice has to be changed. People freak out and say, oh, what, you just want murderers running around on the street? You tell people meritocracies have to be gotten rid of, and you're going to say, oh, great, what, you're going to pick a random person on the street to take out your brain tumor? And the answer is no, obviously not. Just as there's a means to make sure dangerous people are not loose out in the street, you got to make sure it's competent people who are doing the brain surgery and not randomly selected people. Um, but you have to do things so that the person doesn't come out the other end being thought of by society as they are a better human than most people. They are more deserving of an enormous salary. They are, yeah, entitlement and attributions into a realm in which one ignores machineness and instead sees like fairy dust explanations, there can't be any room for them. Interesting. This is a, a twist I hadn't expected. I know we're going to finish in a, in a few minutes, but so this, I take it then is really affecting not just your view of the prison system, but politics more generally and maybe swinging you towards something more closely resembling uh, socialism if you weren't already there, or God forbid, uh, uh, communism. Yeah, I'm, I'm not, just because I like emergent complexity, I'm not a big fan of centralized top-down systems, so I'm, I'm slightly more classical anarchist in my taste for distributed causality, but yeah, like, if this really is the case, um, nobody has earned their corner office and their fortune from finally, like, going public with their startup. Nobody deserves their prison term. Nobody deserves to have doctors implicitly be less concerned about pharmacologically controlling their pain levels because they're of an outgroup member that... No one deserves any of this, and no one deserves to feel good about themselves if they have some fancy-ass degree from a prestigious university, as I'm sure both of us at times derive our sense of well-being, at least partially from that, because none of us have earned it. Like, if I had been born in Niger, I would have been sufficiently protein malnourished that I could not have, like, gotten tenure at Stanford University. I would have... Yeah. Like, none of us earned any of this. And like, maybe it's hard to remember that all the time, but remember where it really matters when you're just about to judge someone or when you're just about to think that somehow you should be able to cut in the front of the line in front of everyone else because you turned out to be good at X and had nothing whatsoever to do with that. Well, uh, Robert, I think that this is the place to end our conversation. It's been terrific. Thank you so much for writing this book. And thank you again so much for talking with me about it on the show.